Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and faith for jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, Grammy-nominated guitarist from Hershey, Pennsylvania, Benjamin Laparus. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Mr. Lapidus with us. Sir, thank you for joining. Honor. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Can you please give a short summary about you and then we get into it? Yeah, my name is Benjamin Lapidus. I know there's a guy named Ben Lapidus who's doing very well right now in America's Got Talent. And a lot of people know me as Ben Lapidus, but um, I'm not the same guy on America's Got Talent. I play the... Cuban tres, the Puerto Rican cuatro, the electric guitar. I play uh, the stick and the war guitar, which are two uh, uh, tapping instruments that you tap on, like uh, Stanley Jordan style. Um, I also play the organ and a bunch of other instruments. And um, I have been a professional musician for about 36 years in New York City. And... Um, what else can I tell you? I mostly play Latin jazz, jazz, and Spanish Caribbean music, but I'm always up to play something else if somebody asks me. Okay. Well, I know you have an album that's out right now, just got released. The uh, first thing I need to ask you is, why is there Yoruba on that? Why is there Yoruba? Okay, yeah. <laughs> because that's a, that's a good question, but it's really quite simple. When Yoruba peoples came to the Americas and they came to the Caribbean, especially and in uh, South America in great numbers, particularly to Cuba, uh, to Brazil, to, to other places in the Americas, but those two places in particular in great, in great numbers. And later in places like Trinidad and Tobago, uh, that, but that was much later. That was in the 19th uh, century. Uh, they brought with them their culture, their language and their faith, which uh, was cloaked by um, Catholic saint worship. So instead of, um, you know, people, uh, slaves were given days off on patron saint uh, days. So uh, one way to to continue to venerate um, your faith and, and practice with to say, hey, yeah, I'm going to celebrate uh, for your Saint Barbara, but in secret, they were really celebrating Chango. So you have this very um, strong and deep uh, syncretism, like the mixing of two religions, but really it was an idea of cloaking the African belief system and the Orisha-centered uh, worship. And, and uh, so in Cuba and in Cuban music and in Brazil and Brazilian music, but you also find it in other places. You find this in Haiti, you find this in throughout the Caribbean. Um, and there's all, many other ethnic groups um, that uh, actually have languages and religions and cultures that are uh, obviously found in places like Cuba and Brazil. But Yoruba, in this case, Lukumi, which is the um, the language, is what is used for the Orisha songs in, in Cuba. So on this particular record, uh, the focus is Ochun, who's a goddess associated with honey, um, rivers and um i used some of the prayers for ochun and 
mix a little bit of blues in there. But I, I've done this before in other records. I did recording for Ochosi. I've done um, jazz um, versions of uh, Congolese Palo Monte religion, and also um, uh, Obatala I did in uh, 2005. So I've been in, a student of Afro-Cuban folklore for probably, you know, 27, 28, 30 years, I don't know, and performing Afro-Cuban folklore with lots of different musicians in New York City and around the world. And it's just one of the things that I do in, in trying to bring that with jazz, bring it together with jazz so that so that one is not really on top of the other one, but they're working yeah. together. So that's why there's Yodobo on the record. Okay. That threw me off when there was vocalists in there. I was that probably people laughing at me for that. But yes. And one other question, since you did mention that, who else have you played with that I would know off the top of my head? Oh, boy. Uh, known ones. Let's <laughs> see. Well, Jerry and Andy Gonzalez. I don't know if you're familiar with them from Fort Apache. Um, I played with Jerry Gonzalez. I played Andy Gonzalez, put a record out in 2000 and. 15 that got a grammy nomination for best latin jazz album 2016 and i played on half of that record and i wrote the liner notes and i also contributed a, a composition to that record i played with uh tipica 73 i played i mean a lot a lot of people buena vista social club i played with ruben blades i played with larry harlow since 1995 96 who just passed away a couple of years ago one of the one of the biggest uh salsa musicians uh i played with um jeff tane watts i play with whoever calls me basically that's my philosophy I've, i played with uh with tipica 73 i've played with chico alvarez for many years um i played with uh, a number of japanese musicians like rie akagi i did her record i played with kaori fuji i did an album for victor japan and toured japan a couple times with her wait, wait i gotta ask about that how was that Oh, it was a great experience. I wrote the arrangements. It was basically Brazilian music, but I'm not a Brazilian specialist. So I sort of Cubanized the Brazilian repertoire and, um, I wrote out uh, all the arrangements and it was recorded here in New York, but the album came out in Japan. It had some great musicians on it. And, um, Japan was great, great experience. Um, really great audiences and, um, making a record like that was a great challenge because I would write the charts here and then send them to Japan. They would look at them, ask for some changes. I would make the changes and move on to the next charts. Did the, all the charting and within three months and then it came here. We recorded the album and it came out within months and then we went to Japan and toured with it. So it was a, it was a challenge, but it was really a, a, a great experience. Okay. And I didn't get to ask because you were talking before the nomination. I mean, the Grammy nominated album that you played on, you said you were composing and arranging a lot of that yeah i wrote one song for that and then um i wrote the liner notes i played guitar on it i played the tres on it and i also sang on it um it's called entre colegas andy andy gonzalez is probably one of the most recorded bass players in uh in history um he's been on over 800 records probably more and uh, this was his first kind of solo project that he did he had been a band leader for libre and he played with everybody and plus his him and his brother's band Ford Apache, but this was his first solo project. And the idea was to imagine if Django Reinhardt had gone to the Caribbean. So it was all, it was all guitar and cuatro and today's players like, um, David Oquendo, Nelson Gonzalez, myself, and, uh, 
Orlando Santiago and Mostro from Puerto Rico. Okay. And were there any difficulties you covered that recording that album? No, that was a tremendous uh, pleasure to record. Great, great musicians. Uh, Lucas and Zakai Curtis produced it for their label, Truth Revolution Records. And um, oh, that was an, um, that was a great experience. You know, a- Andy was having some health problems at that time, but he played great. He sounded amazing. Okay. Well, I know, unfortunately, you didn't win on that one, but I love that one. <laughs> I was listening to it earlier. Uh, Thanks. So the thing about this album that I did enjoy and that's something I was telling you before we actually recorded, is that it reminded me of before, you know, the culturalization and can't happened to the city in Bushwick, a lot of the parks, I would hear that in the summer, that type of music sounding just like that, not overly perfect, everything like that. And and anyone that's a tourist in the city, if you go to Coney Island, there's like a little bridge bay. On the weekends, they all bring their instruments, the Congos and everything, and they're just jamming. But what was your motivation to actually do it like that? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And and this record for me, like any record, is just a document of where you are in, in life at the moment. And I've been doing a lot of stuff um, a little bit differently, a little bit the same. So in terms of all that music, Puerto Rican music, Cuban music, Dominican music, you know, I've been into it since I'm a kid, thanks to my uh, my dad and my where I grew up and so forth. But you know, in terms of as a musician who also plays jazz, you know, you want to kind of bring all of that together in who you are. And the last few years, let's face it, have been uh, challenging for everyone, um, but also for musicians, particularly with COVID and whatnot. We lost a lot of people. It was difficult to play. It was difficult to, to uh, have gigs. And it was really difficult to record. So a lot of the music I had gotten together before COVID hit. And then once COVID hit, I had to figure out what I was going to do with it because we couldn't really go into the studio so most of it was, was, uh, I had to do like, you know, once the restrictions were eased. But one of the cool things for me is I got really deep into the Hammond organ, um, during the pandemic. Um, and I got myself an organ because I always love playing with organ players. And, uh, that was the thing that I threw decided, me off on your album because when yeah. I was picturing like that park thing and everything, I think I f- it was your 10th, tr- what track number was that? I'm sorry. Where you pull out the organ, I'm thinking, yeah, I never seen anyone actually play the organ. I've seen people bring out a keyboard and jam yeah. with the people, but yeah. Yeah, well, I did a record. The last record I did was all organ. Um, it was trying to play Latin music with the organ. I had Frank Anderson play on half of it, who's uh, 94 years old now. And he had played with everybody, Cudi Williams, Vicentico Valdez, you know, you name it. Frank, Frank's played with them. Um, and, uh, and Jared Gold played on the other part of the record. I love the Hammond organ. I've been playing with Hammond organ players since, you know, the early nineties. And I always love the sound of it. And I, I have so many great organ player friends and I'm a fan of so many great musicians. I was, I was friends with Joey D. Francesco, rest in peace. And, would always go to see him and we were trying to figure out about how to do something. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, yo, I'm going to, I'm going to just do this. I'm going to just get an organ and try. And that's what I did. So that's why I play organ on the record. Uh, I really, I really love it. It's a, it's a fun, fun instrument. It just feels good. So yeah, I tried to bring that into the, into the mix as well. So you've got the organ, you've got all the Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican music. And then I play uh, tres and guitar on a few tracks, but then the rest of the album I'm playing the war guitar, which is that tapping instrument we were talking about. And I've been into that since 1988. 
Um, and I wanted to bring that instrument into uh, Spanish Caribbean music as well. And that's really what I've been up to. I've been playing, I was playing a lot of trio gigs and solo gigs with that instrument. And then I said, you know what? This is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. So I'm going to put it all together and, and make this recording. Okay. Yeah. That's actually fascinating, at least to me. I'm glad that you're innovating and trying new things about it. But what was the main challenge you had with this Pacific recording? Was there anything? The main challenge was being able for, to get every, everybody in the studio to do it, you know, really had to wait until things got easier around COVID, um, being able to go into the studio. So that didn't really happen until last year, 2020 and 2021 was, you know, I was doing a lot of people would say, oh, I'm doing this recording. Can you play on this? And then they would send you something, you would play on it, and you would send it back, but you couldn't be in the same space as people. So, Well, do you, you prefer know, yeah. that? Because I know some artists that actually prefer to do that remote recording. I mean, that's cool, but that's not what making music is about. It's about playing with other people, playing off of what other people play. You know, if somebody, you know, plays a chord that sets you in a certain direction while you're improvising, or a percussionist plays something that catches what you're doing, that's where the magic is in the music. So I prefer that than just, you know, here's a track we did, you play on top of it. I, you know, sometimes you have to do that, but it's not, it's not preferable. Okay, so when popular music does that more and more nowadays, especially because of COVID, do you think yeah. that's affecting their music world? No, because popular music is completely different aesthetic than jazz and then creative improv improvised music. Latin music, um, Latin dance music um, is made a lot that way where you'll have like a bass and then people will put their parts down for a track and then, and then change things. I don't know. It depends how, how you look at it. I mean, if you're going for you want a super pristine product. No, I'm just curious because you're a professor and you have students. And I know a lot of them might make their money if they are not teaching, performing pop stuff. So I'm just curious. Do you think that's going to hurt them, hurt the progression of music? No? No, I don't think it hurts. It's pop music is a whole different thing. Pop music is about getting the most clean, pristine, commercial sound possible. So whatever it takes to achieve that, you know, is, is what it's about. You're not pop music doesn't really always look to find at least modern day pop music doesn't look to find those little cracks and crevices and nooks and crannies where, you know, you create kind of swing and there's differences between like who's on the beat and who is on the beat. Pop music is really about, you know, being on the beat and, you know, being very precise, you know, whether it's you know, hip hop or, you know, all this stuff that kind of sounds like house music that comes out on the radio today, or even, you know, Spanish Caribbean music. It's like very on the beat. It's like yes. very precise. So, you know, if that's what you're into, cool. You know, if that's what the, if that's your market, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, okay. it's all about context, right? I agree on that. Okay. So in terms of Latin jazz music, what is the market really? That's a really good question. Um, I think people, when they hear it, they absolutely love it, um, who are not really that familiar with it. But um, I think we still have a long way to go in terms of more exposure. I mean, you look at a lot of jazz festivals, there's not a ton of Latin music on the jazz festivals. To their credit, right, New Orleans Jazz Festival just was just dedicated to Puerto Rico, and they had a lot of Puerto Rican artists. And before that, they had Cuba, 
But if you look at the mainstream jazz festivals around the United States, they're not programming as much Latin music as they used to. But I think I think when people hear uh, Latin jazz, they really really um, connect with it. It's got all the percussion and all that all that connection with the percussion, and then the, with the jazz, I think it's just like an incredible combination. You know, in Spanish they call it the perfect combination, and people like Tito Puente and. Jerry and Andy Gonzalez and Mongo Santa Maria, you know, and, and on and on and on. They really, you know, had, they really figured out how to do it. And they were really able to do it also because they were really comfortable with Latin music and with jazz. So the product, the music that they made was just timeless. It's classic, classic stuff, man, classic. Mm-hmm. And what would you do to get Latin jazz back into more jazz festivals because my opinion the attendance alone is already down so um that's a really good question I mean jazz festivals seem to have a lot of pop music these days they don't really seem to have a lot of jazz so I'm not I'm not really the probably the guy to ask that question to uh, but I think education is really you know making sure that people learn the roots of the music um sending young people out to go hear concerts you know, I, I, I teach uh, uh, college students. Most of my my students have never really gone out to go hear a concert. So uh, one of the things we do in the class is like, hey, you have to go see a concert. You have to, you know, answer these questions. Who are the musicians? What are the solos? Or stuff, so on and so forth. And then they say, oh, man, that was so much fun. I, I can't believe how awesome that was. I, I can't wait to go out and hear some music again. But it's it's not as much a part of the culture anymore. We live in a culture that's really about like people on a screen accessing any information at all times. So like you could say to somebody, oh, that song sounds like this and then refer them to that. And hopefully they'll add it to their playlist. So they'll go into the rabbit hole and learn more about that particular artist. But in some cases they won't, you know, so the way we consume music is completely different than the way we used to, you know, it's like all information and you know, how does the good stuff get to the top? You know, how does the good stuff beat out all the, the mediocre stuff? And and where where is it that young people learn about our great traditions of, you know, jazz and Latin music or any American music that's not based on like, you know, cheap, easy to produce pop music, you know? It's it's like I mean and but it's not it's not limited to Latin jazz or to salsa or merengue. I mean, it's even with hip hop, you know, like my yes. kids are, my kids are in high school, uh, one graduated and they always play what, what they consider to be like the latest cutting edge, you know, hip hop. And I'm always like, wow, that's very different than the music that I used to go, you know, I used to go see Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul. I saw Public Enemy. I saw all those groups when they were in their heyday live in person. And, um, there's not even, I, I feel like with, there's not even that culture of those groups today that are putting out music. It's just like about getting the views on Instagram or TikTok. They're not even really touring and people don't go out to hear them perform. Like who's who's touring and performing are the, the old the old folks, you know, LL Cool yeah. J and Wu-Tang Clan, you know. And that's that music is when you look at it, it's 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 relatively old. Whether we tread anything we can no, do. No, no. Well, one thing that you did say that I do agree with is like the elders are the ones performing mainly now. Yeah. I think that's a part of the problem with this the commercialization of all music from jazz to everything. Because 
A, it's just about, like you said, getting the likes, getting the song out. So you see even more now than before One Hit Wonders. And then we could go down that rabbit hole with the hip hop or the jazz or the freaking Latin stuff. People who have one, especially now, and if you go into like the Spotify playlist or the title, Apple, these guys have one song that tracks well, has hundreds of views, hundreds of thousands, and then everything else drops off. Then you don't hear from them again. Something I have a problem with in terms of that. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the way things are these days. It's really weird. It's a it's a very strange way to think about music, you know. So you're reaching thousands and thousands of people, but how much interaction do you have with them? You know, if you can get the gigs and you can travel around and, and meet people, that's great. But you know, it's it is it's totally different. I mean, I think back to when I was a kid. Besides vinyl, you know, forty fives and LPs. Um, that we would have, my dad had an eight track player. We would make eight track mixtapes and then we had cassette mixtapes and, you know, and then we could play cassettes in the car because it was an adapter. I remember for the eight track player in the car and the eight track boom box. And, you know, and if you liked a particular song, you could fast forward and change the program, but it took a while before you could hear, you have to hear the whole album. You couldn't hear the same song. I mean, they're on the, on the radio. Remember you would call the DJ, they would play the song that you like and you might be able to tape it. But, you know, it was a, a different way of consuming music. Even with vinyl, you know, you look at the record, you're holding the record in your hand, you get to learn about the artist. Oh, I saw this guy on this record, or she was singing on this record. You kind of piece it together. Now, all of that information is available in a split second. I could say, oh, I don't remember who played on that record. And then my kids or somebody will pull it up and be like, oh, there's the complete credits on the record and bam, like you don't have to hunt for it. That's useful, okay. you know, if you're doing research, but in terms of like trying to learn the lay of the land, it's good to kind of have to go through those steps and be like, oh, this was the drummer on this record and he played with this, oh, neither on this record and then I'm going to listen to that record. I mean, that's that's kind of like what I grew up with and my peers grew up with and like the repeated listening, like playing the same song or the same album. Like we, would, I would go to um, Mario no, Rivera's... No, but nobody replays albums like that anymore. They yeah, pretty much uh, run through it once, they heard it, save maybe one song and they move on. Nah, man. I mean, with the guys that I came up with and the guys who mentored me, it was about going to their house, listening to the record. You didn't really talk. You listened to it, then you talked, and you put it back on again. You know, it was repeated listening, repeated listening. And that's what I do to this day. You know, I keep, I listen to some of the same records all the time because I hear new stuff and I'm like, oh man, check out that thing that he just played there behind it. I never realized that, you know, but it's a different attitude. You know, it's, it's like, you know, in, in, just focusing on all of the, all of the, the richness that's, that's happening in, in the experience. And a lot of those great records too, you think about, it, they were recorded with very few microphones, very few studio tricks, especially the great jazz records, uh, and the great Latin records too. Like, you know, they, there's distortion in the vocals, this, the mix is kind of weird, but man, the playing is out of sight. The playing is out of sight. So wh what would you rather have? The super pristine, you know, digital, sterile kind of thing, or the kind of funky here, the grittiness of it, but the playing is just like all oh, oh, max to the max. And I, I'd rather, I'd rather have that. That's the live experience that, that, that I grew up with and that I, I love to be in. It's just, it's nothing better than that. That's where the music lives and breathes, you know?
Yeah, but I mean, I don't really have listening parties. My friends don't really have listening parties, so maybe your kids are, but I think that's a thing of the past. It's a thing of the past, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, one thing I definitely need to ask you, okay? Yeah. You see the Grammys at one point. I, I've, I did you see the Grammys? Yes, I did. I did. Okay. You're my hero for that. Because <laughs> I agree with you 200%. They can't just be accent categories. I actually hate the fact that if you're an artist, people, that is not considered active, in other words, you haven't released a track in five years, they will take your membership away. And the thing about that is they're not even giving it to other artists. They're giving it to, like, journalists or life fans. So there's a whole bunch of stuff about the Grammys I don't like. So the fact that you actually with... It was four other people, correct? Three, there was four of us total. I was okay. one of four, yeah. Okay, three other people. You and three other people who actually sued it. You're forever a mentor hero of mine. Okay? Uh, I, I wish more you. people I, did that. Well, thanks. I don't... At the time, it, it felt like there was the right thing to do. I, I don't know if there was any other recourse, to be honest. And in the end, the category for Latin jazz was reinstated, but many of the other 31 categories that were cut were not reinstated. I don't know if in the long term that will be a, a problem for me, you know, the more I make records. But at the time, I felt like it was the right move to make. And, and if I had to do it again and go back in time, I would have done it because I think, I think there was, I think it was a major injustice. And I think that, that you know, I I learned from young age to stand up for, for what's right, and um, you know, I I think there were certain people who who said don't do that, don't do that, you know, it's not going to help you. But I felt like you know I'm a member of the organization, I've been paying dues, and I I don't I don't understand why this is I haven't gotten a good reason why this is happening, and it, it seemed to be based on things that had nothing to do with with um with what was being said but at the end of the day you know that's that was uh that was um that was a pretty serious thing i really don't think about it that much but there was a lot of press around it and there were there was a lot of outrage and for me as a musician you know i had recorded my album and then bam when they when they said there's no more latin jazz i was just like wow wow what am i gonna do with my record and then I wasn't the only one. There were other people, too, who were in the same position. So, you know, it's, you know, it was, uh, it's part of history, I guess. You know, a lot of people don't know about it, but, yeah, it's part of history. I mean, there are people who pay attention to it. I personally do. And then once you start axing categories, I understand, even though I love him, I was pissed off that he did that. Oh, Kanye, when he did that rant that we need a popular vote. I'm like, that's not what the Grammys are about. The Grammys are about your peers acknowledging you. And the more you commercialize it, you're going to have people. And I want to say like 20 to 30 percent of my guests are people who won Grammys or been nominated by Grammys. There's a reason why a good amount of them come on here and they're just like, yeah, yeah, I want a Grammy. Okay, whatever. Big deal. Yeah, well, it's it's about it's supposed to be when it started, you know, I think. Um, the Grammys are supposed to be about excellence in music. It's not supposed to be a popularity contest. I know that might be a naive, uh, view, but that's what, um, the organization, that's what it started with when they did the first broadcast and the first selections. And there are many times when there are artists that are not commercial who take, you know, top awards. It happens every once in a while, like Samara Joy, you know, Herbie Hancock. You know, it, it happens from time to time. Um, 
but yeah, there are, there are some questions as to how the whole process works. And I think, um, you know, popularity is a, is a whole different ball game in terms of music. And you talked about other guests. I mean, you know, you really don't make music to win awards. I mean, hopefully people like your music and hopefully it brings you more opportunities to perform, to record, to play gigs, to get recognized for what you do. But you, you can't make a recording and say like, oh, this is going to be, you know, the winner in this category. It's, you know, you make the record because you want to make a record. Otherwise, like what you can't, you can't live your life and make music for that purpose. So I think, you know, in the, at the end of the day, it's really about the music, the music, the, the people that I admired the most and have invested the most in me, my teachers, my elders, they always said, you know, take care of the music, you know, put the time into the music. And I still have all their voices in me. So like when I make something, you know, and I think there might be a mistake, I'll call the person who's my elder, who's been around for a long time and say, hey, what do you think about this in this chart? Should I do this or that? And if they say, no, I think you should do this or, oh, that's good. I'll, I'll take that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. You know, like I'm 50. Um, I still feel like I'm a teenager in terms of my concept and, and what I'm doing. I know, I know I'm not. I'm, I, I have more knowledge and more skill than when I was, than when I was a teenager, but I still, you know, look to, to my elders when I have a musical problem or a musical question that I can't necessarily solve. Um, and I think that's an important thing to do, especially like in Cuban music, we have a really strong focus on the clave, which is this two bar figure mm-hmm. um that's uh five beats you know like how are you i'm fine how are you i'm fine and the music is organized around that it's a timeline basically so when you do when you arrange music that is pegged to the clave you have to really know how to come in and out the phrasing has to come in a certain way the improvisation has to come in a certain way so if there's any question you know like where it's ambiguous you have to make sure it gets resolved in the same way that harmony gets resolved rhythm has to get resolved in cuban music so you know if i have a question i'll i'll ask people say hey what do you think of this i mean can, is this okay is this permissible or should i do it this way you know and I, and I think those are the types of things that um that are important to teach and those are the important those are the types of things to preserve in the music and and I think it's I think the whole intergenerational aspect of music is really fascinating to me. I love I used to love being like the youngest guy in the bandstand by like 50 60 years because um you just would learn so much history and not just history but like how to play certain things. Like I think of you know, people would say, oh, well, so-and-so used to play it like this, and they would grab my instrument and then play it. Or so-and-so used to play it like this, and they would sing it. And then I would, then you would be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Or so-and-so would play this, and it couldn't st- people couldn't stop from dancing when they played this. You know, my last record I re- got to record with Candido Camero, who lived to be 98. That guy recorded with everybody. Sonny Rollins, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie. I, f- I got a recording of him playing with John Coltrane, Donald Byrd, Art Taylor, and uh, Winton Kelly in Philadelphia in 1956. He's basically leading the band with every solo that he takes, and and they're trading eights with him. You know, he's a conga player, played with everybody, but he also played the tres and the bass. So when, you, when you're in a studio with him or in a bandstand with a guy like that, and he can tell you about musicians who were around playing from when he was a kid, my God, like, that's just 
that's what that's what the music is about. It's like kind of like time travel mm -hmm. and education and culture and fun all all rolled up into one. Especially when you're in a position to be blessed to be around the all elder musicians and to get that knowledge from them. And you know, any any opportunity to 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 keep that going is is really for me what it's about. Okay. Was there any backlash that you're aware of from that? From the Grammy thing uh, that you noticed when all the press was coming, was it more positive? Was it more negative? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say. Uh, I guess um, there was there was a lot of press. Um, was there any negative? I don't. I don't think there was much negative press. I think a lot of the press supported the campaign. I think. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at it because honestly, it's, okay. it's something that I, I never looked That's back at. That's you know? more like there wasn't any negative then. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it would affect me with the, with the community. You know, like when I put out a record, if, if I'll get considered for a nomination, I really, it's really hard for me to say. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm still a, a dues paying member of the organization. I still vote and so forth. Um, but. Again, it's it's not my main focus. It's it's you know my focus is uh, making music, and I write books about music and trying to preserve the history of the music. That's that's really what I focus on. The the awards and stuff is is like not even is honestly not in the front of my head at all. There's no time to think about that. Nah, I get there's you. Too many. There's too, there's most, too many. Too many things to do. Too many. Most of the voting members I know don't really vote. That's another problem I have. <laughs> but yes, I do agree with you on that. Or people do what you're not supposed to do, which is they solicit votes, you know. But, you know, it's 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 just, you know, the, like someone said to me, I have a friend who's a, who's a great producer. Aaron Levinson one time was talking about the reward of all this is that you get to make the work, you get to keep doing the art. And I really, I really believe that, you know, just to keep perfecting, to keep improving, you know, that's... That's, you know, you never look at Sonny Rollins, you know, he was, you know, practice. I don't know if he's still practicing all, but practicing actively in his nineties, you know, like Pharaoh Sanders, you know, everybody, they're trying to reach for something. And, and that's, that's, I feel the same thing. I'm trying to reach for something. I, I don't know if I'll ever attain it, but, but I have, I know, I know the direction to go in. Okay. Well, no, no award. No, there's not going to be an award when I figure that out. Nah, no, nah, I, I don't expect that. <laughs> I don't expect that. Uh, sir, well, that's great. I know we don't have all the time in the world. Uh, could you please just tell the people your website, where to find your album, all your other stuff? I know we didn't get into your books, but please tell them where to find all your stuff. Okay, so um, if you go to my website, which is benjaminlapidus.com, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N, lapidus.com um, you can find links to my records which are on all digital platforms or you can get them from me physically uh, there's also links to uh, my books I have a book about a Cuban uh, genre of music called Changui from Eastern Cuba Guantanamo that's my first book and my most recent book came out in 2021 it's called New York and the International Sound of Latin music, 1940 to 1990. That's also available on Amazon and directly from University of Mississippi Press. Um, if you're interested and you're in New York City on this coming Friday, on May 
12th, we will be doing a live Q&A and performance with two Panamanian um, jazz innovators, Frank Anderson and Enid Lowe, both uh, tremendous musicians who uh, were honored by the Panama Jazz Festival who live here in Brooklyn. And then my official, excuse me, CD release uh, concert will be at Terraza 7, that's in Queens, New York, on June 3rd at 8 p.m. It's outdoors, so if you want to stay healthy and away from people and co from COVID and stuff, you can sit outside. That's June 3rd at uh, Terraza 7 in Queens. And uh, I got a lot of other performances coming up uh, in May and June, playing with uh, the great Juan Uceda, a Puerto Rican uh, Bombi Plena um, artist. And also I'll be playing with uh, Kiki Valera Miranda, a great Cuban Cuatro player. We're going to be playing in uh, Riverbank Park uh, in June, I believe, 17th in uh, Harlem and also in Rhode Island. And, uh, yeah, just go to my website. Everything's on the website and all of the music is available either under my name, Benjamin Lapidus, on uh, Spotify, iTunes, or I have five other albums that I put out under the name Sonido Isleño, S-O-N-I-D-O-I-S-L-E-N-Y-O, or N-O. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my story. And thank you, Leander, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to uh, speak with you and to have you share my my thoughts and my music with uh, the people who uh, watch and listen to you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And there's one other thing. If you had one other, one artist that you could play with, any, who would it be? Oh, boy. It doesn't have to be Latin. It could be anything. Man, there's just too many people to pick. I don't I That's... Okay, fine. That's, that's really tough. I, and plus, <laughs> well, the thing is, I played with a lot of people. I mean, I think you mentioned Branford and yeah. Winton. You know, I, I got to talk with Winton a couple of days ago. Well, playing with them would be a lot of fun. But, I mean, I, I, anybody. There's so many amazing musicians out there. It's crazy. Okay. No bomb. Well, everybody, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>